Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. Uh, as always, you can find me throughout the week on the Facebook page, uh, sadly still the Facebook page, um, and I do try and regularly post things there that are more visual and uh, interesting and that aren't just are we're not going to get to during the week. And also, you can find this and other um, previous versions of the show as a podcast, and you can find that on your favorite podcatcher or at Evidence-Based Errata. And tonight, we have a special guest. It is very exciting. We are going to uh, be talking to Michael Cowan, and uh, he is a real live rocket scientist. So, uh, Michael, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, uh, my name is Michael, as uh, you just said, and uh, uh, I I usually say I'm a rocket scientist because it's the easiest way to explain what I do without using the current technical terms, which are a little less interesting to a lot of people. Uh, We usually call ourselves aerospace engineers now or astronautical engineers. my journey, of course, doing that started when I was little. Like lots of us in the space program, we got enthralled with something we saw. And in my case, it was Star Wars. And I, <laughs> it sounds a little silly, but you know, when I was three, I don't remember if I saw it when I was three or six or whatever, but uh, I was enthralled immediately. And this led to being interested in all the time and looking at the night sky as late as I could and sneaking out onto the roof of my house just to see the stars. Um, so it, it became a, this lifelong passion from what seems like a childish source, but this is totally normal, I think. A, a lot of people um, got involved in STEM fields because they saw a man walk on the moon, and that's why we have iPhones, and so all sorts of things are related to that. So... Uh, uh, all throughout school, I was particularly good at math, um, and science was stuff I loved, so chemistry and physics and stuff like that. So um, I remember when I was in uh, high school, I went to a library with my father to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, and it seems weird to say that now because the internet exists. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So Once long, long ago, when you couldn't actually just find everything on your iPhone. <laughs> right, exactly. So, uh, uh, and uh, it, this are, was always on the list of the things I wanted to do, and, and I found that I could do it. And so, uh, I, although I grew up in New Jersey, I ended up going to the University of Texas at Austin to study aerospace engineering there. Um, there was one school that offered undergrad in New Jersey, which was Princeton. And while I got into it, I couldn't afford to go. It was very expensive. Yes. So the University of Texas was a great opportunity because I got to meet all sorts of amazing people and brilliant minds. And I remember um, a quick funny story, not related to rocket science at all, but I was in an elevator, and this guy walks in, and he had an entourage, and he was talking about how much he loved teaching. And I was thinking, well, that's so great. And as it turns out, he was talking about teaching postdocs and he was a nobel laureate oh wow (laughs) (laughs) so he preferred his students to already have a phd anyway uh, was he one of the uh still functioning uh nobel laureates (laughs) yeah yeah he was he was still quite brilliant so we can talk a little bit at some point if you want about the sort of nobel laureate disease (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah, a, a lot of them uh, end up uh, having to move on to being more administrators rather than doing research. Um, so, anyway, uh, uh, it was a it was a great experience, and I got to work with all sorts of amazing people, um, uh, including Dr. Zebehe, who uh, uh, he helped invent the free return orbit that we used to go to the moon. Excellent. And I had him for advanced orbital mechanics, and he, you know, <laughs> The, the, there were very few people that stay in classes for aerospace engineering throughout the entire time they're there, and so, so there were only like there were, there were only like six of us in that class, and there were four professors. And was, <laughs> <laughs> I can and I, imagine it's definitely the kind of thing that you willow people out very quickly. Yeah, I, uh, and it's not that the, these people weren't smart enough; it's just that uh, they found other things that interest them more, probably. Mm -hmm. And so it took a certain dedication to stay in. So, like, a, a good example of that is uh, there were 130 in my intro to aerospace engineering class, and six of us graduated in aerospace engineering. Almost right. everyone else just graduated just in different forms of engineering. So Right. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, that was an amazing experience. And right after that, I got to work in the manned space program. So That is pretty fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up living in Houston for quite a long time to support that, and that was, um, it's, it's been a, a great journey, and it only continues to get better, I think. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a, a, it's a brief overview, and uh, I've done all sorts of amazing things. I started out working in the shuttle program, uh, and then moved on to the space station program. I was there for quite a long time. Uh, I guess... From 2000 to, oh, it doesn't matter. 2000, <laughs> 2000 like 12 years or something like that in the space station right. program. And then I thought I, I, I was getting a little bit bored with it, so I thought I'd go, <laughs> go try airplanes for a little while. And, uh, no. <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine that's a that's a step up from the <laughs> International Space Station. <laughs> um, and so then, uh, uh, so now I'm back on the Orion Space Program. Um, and, uh, and all sorts of exciting things are happening in space nowadays with uh, uh, all the commercial ventures like SpaceX and Blue Origin and and all those things. And so uh, it's only getting better. And NASA's really been doing gangbusters lately. I mean, uh, there was a there was about a six month stretch where every every week I had a space story because there was just something new happening. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it, you know, it won't slow down. Uh, I don't think because. Uh, as more exciting things happen, there's more money to do more exciting exactly. things, and then uh, uh, as our capabilities increase, and we'll keep doing them. So, yeah. So, um, why don't we talk a little bit more about your time at NASA? Because I bet that's something people would be so, really interested. So I never, I never worked. Work. Okay. You were a contractor for okay. for a company that was contracting with NASA. Yeah. So. Um, we, you could talk a little bit about that because I bet people don't really know about that sort of a thing either. They just assume that if you're working on NASA programs, you're working for NASA. Yeah. Uh, so NASA doesn't directly employ very many people. They do have some, uh, and those people mostly uh, support the astronaut in the manned space program. They mostly support the astronaut program, which is making sure the astronauts are trained and ready to go. And then uh, uh, most everyone else gets uh works for companies that get these contracts from NASA, like Lockheed and Boeing and Northrop Grumman, 
these relatively big companies uh, bid for these contracts to run various program, various parts of these programs. And so most of us that do this work are, are actually employed by a company and NASA writes a check for our time. And, um, and so, but you know, so, sometimes we got to work directly on site, like a, uh, especially when I was in the shuttle program, for example, I often supported, um, I was about to use an acronym and that's, <laughs> that's not fair to the listener. <laughs> the mission control room that is sort of famous in movies. Right. Well, that's a real place. Yes. <laughs> and uh, real people work in them 24 uh, seven. And uh, uh, they have various computer tools that they need to use. And so when I first started in the shuttle program, I was doing what we called faster than real time simulate flight simulations of the shuttle. And what that means is that the space shuttle, when it comes in from its mission or starts a mission, whatever, uh, it would take about 30 minutes to go from deorbit to the wheel stopping on the ground. Mm -hmm. Our simulation ran in 30 seconds <laughs> and incorporated real wind data that we got from weather balloons. And that, so, but that's because the people in the mission control room are the ones that decide whether or not it's safe to go. Right. And so a simulation that takes a long time isn't useful to them. So they want to be able to go, uh, uh, the person I support is called a, it's called a FIDO. It stands for Flight Dynamics Officer. <laughs> and uh, it was their job to say whether or not it was safe to come in for a landing. And so I was building these simulations of the shuttle flights that, uh, in particular, I did I did landing. Mm -hmm. uh, other people did uh, launch and right. what we call range safety, which is uh, where the parts go when they separate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, like, you don't want to have a, a rocket booster accidentally crash into some country or, <laughs> or, or onto ships that are out in the middle of the water not knowing what's going on. That, that would be tragic. Yeah. So Not, not great PR. <laughs> no. no uh, NASA's really keen on keeping the death count really low. <laughs> uh, uh, but accidents happen, of course. Oh, yeah. I mean... Going to space is hard. They do an admirable job, uh, both with the manned and unmanned missions. I think a lot of people sort of underestimate that sometimes. They're like, how hard can it be? Very, very hard. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the real problem is that there's very little recourse to fix problems mm -hmm. that occur. And so, like, if you're driving down the road and your car starts having an issue, you kind of pull over. You don't have that opportunity in space. <laughs> you seldom have engines that can ch stop or change what you're doing in the middle of it. And uh, there's no place to pull over to, and no one's, no help is going to come if you... Although, that, you should change that. <laughs> more, more space travel means more opportunities to help each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, that, and that's the real danger, is that uh, um, there's... Uh, it's. I like the early days of sea travel. It's very lonely out there until we're, we conquer things. I'm actually about to get on a little soapbox about this, about okay. the human endeavor here. Um, uh, there's this philosopher at Tufts University uh, that uh, talks about, uh, Daniel Dennett talks about uh, these things called skyhooks. And what it is is that if we wanted to build a skyscraper, we found that it was really useful to have a hook in the sky to loop things around to help lift things. The problem is the sky isn't filled with these hooks. We had to make hooks. And so there's this uh, co-evolutionary path of cranes that that had to be developed in order for us to develop skyscrapers and these 
fancy hotels in Dubai and all that stuff that we have. Uh, the same is true for space travel. We need a bunch of skyhooks, and we don't have them. And all sorts of technologies have to be developed in order for space travel to be helpful. Um, to be something that we'll be able to do is commonplace. Uh, we'll need all sorts of infrastructure built. And, and when you think about it, the, the amount of work that goes into just making a razor is ridiculous. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, toothbrushes, stuff like that. But all this has had time to develop over human history. And we've only mastered this going to the sky since 1911. <laughs> like, right. It's not like... It's not, and, and space is... You know, Sputnik was in the 1950s. We have not had a lot of time to develop all of these parallel technologies. And so if people want to get involved in the space program, there's lots of work for them to do. And, uh, and it doesn't take being super brilliant to do them. Uh, it'll help if you are. But if, <laughs> if you aren't, that's Indeed. okay. Wanting to do it is the only important feature uh, to helping the space program. Well, uh, having this dream of stars uh, as a... Uh, one professor said to me that, that we dream about not just going to them, but live amongst them. Uh, I have to do a bit of full disclosure here. Um, while I do love NASA and I, I love space programs, I do have a um, sort of puckish streak in me where I uh, I always wonder why we don't spend as much time thinking about exploring the oceans. And so it's not that I'm anti-space, it's just that I'm pro-ocean, but um, I just wanted to put that out there because you know what? it is a historical fact of this program that... <laughs> you know, the oceans are a great thing to explore, uh, the, uh, and they're similar problems. That, that in, a, in, a, in essence, they are the same kind of lonely place that for humans to go to because you'd have to bring along with you all the things you need to survive as a person. Uh, and so... And, and certainly there's more things that need to be done to explore the oceans. And there's a lot of, um, uh, I was about to say space, but I don't mean <laughs> space in the same way. But there's a lot of room for us to grow in both these directions. Absolutely. Uh, furthermore, we also haven't dug very down deep into the ground. It, That's true, too. Um, uh, at the first, uh, Russia had a project that drilled quite far deep, but it, even that barely went anywhere. Right. If you look at the actual cross-section of the globe, it was barely a nick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, yeah, it, you wouldn't even notice that we've done it, like, a, if you were to see all the cuts into it. So there's, a, there's, a, there's plenty of spaces for humans to go to and explore, um, and all of them are, are totally worthwhile to do. Um, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, when I first graduated college, the Navy wanted me to work on submarines and I wasn't <laughs> just wasn't quite interested enough uh, um, as it turns out not enough people know how to build submarines um, that's that's a shame because there's a lot of cool things to see in the ocean um, I'm kind of addicted to the EV Nautilus uh, feed uh, so I don't know if you've ever watched it but it's it's mm -hmm. real fun because um, they're they actually just found a completely uh, unknown reef just you know it was just sitting out there and no one had ever discovered it and then they rolled over it and they were like oh hey look it's an entire ecosystem that nobody ever knew about but you know that's just my pitch for the ocean <laughs> well <laughs> but you're here to talk about space and sure. i want to give you that time because sure, sure. i do think it's very important <laughs> yeah uh, and so uh, i i i think it's a uh, its importance is 
can be further underscored in that um, there'll come a time when we have to leave, either because some tragedies about to befall our planet, or uh, there's just not enough natural resources for us to use, or something. Something's going to happen, and we're not ready for it, but that'll be the end, and that's sadder than I can imagine, right? So uh, the ability to uh, go to other worlds gives us the ability to survive these sorts of disasters. Um, the oceans don't provide as much uh, relief on that. Absolutely. Um, but, I mean, they're still important. I would, I would still recommend we do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I'm not trying to pull you to the other side or anything. I just, you know, it's it's something if somebody is a regular listener, they would be thinking to themselves, why are you talking about the sky? You don't like the sky as much, but I do. I love the sky. Um, but I do have a sort of pro ocean uh, bent generally. Sure, sure. Um, so, uh, I'm uh, addicted to cephalopods. That's really what it is. It's the cephalopods. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> they are fascinating. But anyway, um, so no one, no one, uh, Avoids big, lots of interests, I think, and all sorts of different things. Anyway, so uh, uh, I my career is focused on manned spaceflight, um, not because I particularly chose that. Uh, it's just where they needed me at the time, and right. so um, I also really like uh, the unmanned stuff we do with these robots and um, uh, robotic exploration is fantastic as a matter of fact uh, it's arguably better at the science portion of the human endeavor i guess uh, <laughs> I, I, i'm gonna reference basically there 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 are multi-facets to the human endeavor and mm -hmm. two sides of the same coin are engineering and science and science is the quest to know more things and engineering is the quest to be able to do more things as people and they feed each other so as we learn more things we gain the ability to develop new things we can do and as we develop new things we can do we develop new tools that scientists can use to explore the world like the whole lhc for example is an engineering marvel that uh, hitherto for unseen that allows scientists to explore the nature of small particles um similar uh and so both these things feed each other so uh uh, the, so you were so, talking about manned and unmanned. So, so arguably the 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 unmanned does a little better job at the sciencey things, but to be honest, that's not enough. We're eventually going to want to go mm -hmm. wherever we send these robots, and and so uh, the 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 ability to go places is is tantamount. And there's so many parts of it that we haven't had the time or the inclination to explore. Like for example. We still don't have a working shower in space. Yeah. Like it, it's uh, they 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 use a uh, sort of wet wipes to clean themselves, which mm -hmm. is it, it fabulously solves the problem. But the problem it's weird, like right. that we don't have this ability. We tried it on a Russian space station. As it turns out, though, in space, uh, surface tension dominates the behavior of water, and so. It doesn't flow out of things like belly buttons and eyes and noses. Right. And so uh, you nearly drown trying to shower. Um, 
in a sort of class, they use the vacuum at the bottom to suck the water that down. That makes sense, and, yeah. And, and but seems still. Like it's what I would have tried first. Right. <laughs> um, I didn't work on that. so. That, <laughs> but but I, I certainly would have tried that first. It seems like the right way to go. And as it turns out, it, it doesn't work. Well, we, we could, if we had the inclination to, explore other things. Like maybe there's something we can add to the water mm-hmm. that would make that work. There you go. So we need to do more things related to all these things. And this brings in all sorts of fields, not just aerospace engineering like I did, but like chemistry and geology. All these fields feed into our knowledge for space. And so I don't think people that have had slightly different career paths necessarily need to avoid it, avoid the space program if they find an interest in it. Oh, definitely. And I think that... um you know, as I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about all the places, uh, for instance, IO is the, the sort of, uh, confluence of space and ocean. <laughs> yes, exactly. <That's laughs> and, cool. uh, you know, I'd love to know what's under there. And... Oh, yeah. And you know what else, uh, in our own solar system that I find painfully unexplored? Uh, Uranus and Neptune. Absolutely. We've yeah. done almost nothing with those planets. And I, I find that baffling. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's because it, there's been so much interest in Mars and Venus because they're nearby. Right. And so just having that opportunity. And then uh, uh, I paid so much attention to Cassini and because and, uh, Saturn with those rings is so beautiful and the yeah. pictures are amazing. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the pictures that Cassini sent back are just amazing. They're, they're awe-inspiring. And I think that that's something that's really important about space is that it is truly awe-inspiring oh yeah uh, uh and the the images that we get from some of our telescopes and and uh it's it's totally uh, yeah it boggles the mind i mean i love the you know it is the unmanned but you know new horizons where mm-hmm. before new horizons got to pluto literally we didn't know what it looked like yeah. For the most part. I mean, yeah, well, we could, it's small. So. We could guess and we had, but the best images we had were blurry, you know, were uh, that it was a blurry dot out there. And then to have these, you know, uh, amazing images of this real actual planet. <laughs> and planet. I'm sorry. Yes. No. And I'm very clear to say that <laughs> all the time. So that is a misstep <laughs> on my part. Um, but, you know, to have that that body out there that actually is in a real way um, was just fantastic. I think to have what was once almost, you know, we knew it was there, but humans like to actually see things. Yeah. It, it's, uh, Oh yeah, exactly. And, and, and so we want, we, without seeing images of it, we, we tend not to think about it nearly as much. Um, the, uh, uh, so yeah, no, I, I, the New Horizon stuff was awesome, and I I loved seeing that. Um, so yeah, the, all all that robotic stuff, which is great, and 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 uh, and I I definitely want us to keep doing it. So. Yeah, but the man stuff is really important too, and I think mm-hmm. um, so I think that there's in some ways also there's just a lot of resistance out there right now. Um, there seems to be this kind of uh, 
the the upswing of people who don't believe we ever went to the moon and talk about, oh, the radiation, you know, the Van Allen belt, you can't possibly go through it and things like that. And I think it's important to keep, you know, going out there and saying, no, these things are real. We really can do this. Yeah, uh, I find those, uh, I'm weirdly obsessed with people who think the earth is flat. So am I. (laughs) Full disclosure. (laughs) uh, uh, I was on a, uh, I went to one of those uh, sort of nerd conventions last year, Mm -hmm. and I was uh, there to be part of some panels, and and, uh, I was supposed to give a talk, but it got kind of canceled because of things. At any rate, um, I was on this one panel discussion, which was about supposed to be about fringe science, right. and I was thinking we were just going to talk about some weird things, and I prepared to talk about the EM drive that was in the news a lot oh, at yeah. the time, Yep. And, uh, and that's what I was planning to talk about when I got there. And so sitting on my immediate left was a physicist at the local university, uh, sitting in at my immediate right was an empty chair. <laughs> and that guy arrived later, and I'll come to that in a second. And after that was another engineer that worked on all sorts of amazing things uh, as well. And then, uh, so we introduced ourselves and where we're coming from. And I think I started the topic about the EM drive because nobody seemed to ask questions right away on that right. panel. Uh, or the first person who asked a question asked about it. So I was like, oh, I'm prepared for that. Uh, at any rate, then the guy who was immediately on my right came in and sat down. He didn't have to introduce himself. But shortly thereafter, he denied that gravity existed. Oh. <laughs> and the physicist to my left was stunned to silence. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and so, uh, so so I find myself often exploring what these people think. One, because I don't, I, I wonder if, it, if they're telling the truth about their own beliefs. I've come to decide they probably are. There has been a kind of a an issue with that of, you know, when does a troll stop being a troll and really become someone who does believe that. <laughs> At any rate, so I'm sort of convinced that, uh, you know, scientific explanations aren't going to, to, to convince them because the, the, the reason why they doubt is their rejection of authority. Mm-hmm. What they don't realize is that if any of this were true, the first scientist to say that and show it becomes the most famous person in the world. Absolutely. Right. Like Albert Einstein is is a, a name now synonymous with being brilliant, not because he was particularly brilliant, but because he happened to overturn four hundred years of knowledge based off of Newton. Absolutely. <laughs> it's it's overturning these idea previous ideas we have that makes you famous in, in, in STEM fields, not no, I do everything else. Everything's like it way I thought it was. That's not what scientists want. They want it to be different. And 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 so They'll never be convinced because they have this whole idea that it's this authority-based thing and that everyone is lying to them. Yeah, uh, that that NASA is a giant conspiracy, which I'm always like, have you seen the budget of NASA? It does not have time to be a conspiracy while also doing the things it's doing. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, I I mostly wonder what the possible motive, I don't know why. Exactly, the motive. What 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 the government would get out of, or whatever secret agency there is in doing this, gets out of the public thinking that the Earth is erroneously a different shape. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so uh, yes, I expose myself to these things a lot of times, <laughs> and uh, uh, I I'm hoping to 
bring up the nerve to start engaging with them more on the internet than just typing at them, like making my own content, but I haven't done that yet. Um, well, I will encourage you to do that during the break, which we should take. Okay. Um, so once again, you're listening to Evidence-Based Radio on WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton. And we will be back in just a few moments with Michael Cowan. Hang on for just a minute. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt! The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers, from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org.
Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. Hi, I'm Ruthie, and I have a recorder. Stick them up. Listen to Out There on Wednesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. here on Valley Free Radio for interviews and snippets of life from the paths and streets of Northampton. You can hear past editions of Out There archived at weatherbeard.com slash out there. For all the best in Americana, check out Roots and More Tuesday morning from 7 to 9. From blues, folk and rock to Cajun, Zydeco, and alternative country, Roots and More brings you emerging artists, new releases, and older favorites. Tune in Tuesday morning from 7 to 9 on Valley Free Radio. Hamilton was adopted from a rescue in 2008. I do not love him. Hamilton the Pug's adoption story started at a shelter. Visit theshelterpetproject.org to find a pet near you. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Spring and summer are prime time for ticks that can spread Lyme disease and other infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would like to remind you to wear bug repellent when outdoors, shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check your whole body for ticks every day. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. And we are back. And so, once again, I am here with Michael Cohen and Cowan. Cowan, yeah. Cowan, sorry. And uh, we are talking about space mm-hmm. and uh, what you do. So, uh, yeah, I could discuss it in a little more detail, the kinds of things I do. Um, yeah. So um, I'm typically what we call an analyst, which is to say that there's a person that designs whatever it is that we're talking about. And then what I do is I build mathematical representations of that thing to check to see if it meets all the things it needs to do. And so I sort of get to uh, play around with these these ideas. So, for example, right now I'm working on uh, uh, the ECLIS system. ECLIS stands for Environmental Control and Life Support for the Orion program. Very and, important. Yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, pe- People people like to breathe. <laughs> uh, they like to be warm, and they uh, like to eat and all that stuff. So um, the these devices have to survive all sorts of environments and weird things happening to them, and you know, and, and, and landing on planets and all sorts of things like that. So the so I build mathematical models of them, and then we check those uh, to see if they. For example, uh, this one thing I work on pulls carbon dioxide out of the air. Because as it turns out, um, uh, normal air that exists here on Earth is roughly three-fourths nitrogen. We don't do anything with that. It's 23%, I think, oxygen. But we don't even need that much. I don't remember how much we need, but we don't need that much. Right. Uh, And there's 2% other stuff. What really is the problem is we breathe out carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And if carbon dioxide gets above a couple percent, we just pass out. Yep. And that's bad. <laughs> so the trick is to remove carbon dioxide from the air so that people can continue to breathe. Well, the 
the devices that you build to do that have a relatively difficult task because they got to pull out carbon dioxide and not much else. Right. And so there are a variety of means to go about that. But, um, and this this particular mean has this uh, has this chemical that uh, uh, I don't actually know the exact nature of, but it apparently absorbs carbon dioxide and water. And then when you expose it to vacuum, it releases those things. And so we just go back and forth between exposing it and unexposing it to vacuum. Nope. Exposing it to the air and then to the vacuum. Get rid of it. Right. Anyway, uh, uh, but that device is, of course, got to survive next to the people and next to the other things. And there's all sorts of problems with temperature. And is it processing enough air after all these things happen to it? And that is basically what I'm checking. Yeah. And also just wear and tear. Oh, yeah, exactly. We want the... Uh, um, for the Orion program, we want it to last, uh, of course, the construction process and, and moving it to launch sites and stuff. And then we want it to survive five missions. Right. And so that, that can get complicated. Absolutely. And so we go through all sorts of uh, rather painful efforts to make sure that that'll be okay. And then in the meantime, that it can be manufactured by real people and that... Uh, uh, when it's there, it's not dangerous because uh, apparently sharp corners are dangerous to people who are floating around and so you want to get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that sharp corners are probably bad when you're... <laughs> um, there, there are, we've all seen that uh, that sci-fi movie. <laughs> uh, there are also uh, other problems that people don't think about, like uh, electrostatic discharge. So the same... Yeah thing that happens to you when you walk around in your home and you shock the doorknob or whatever that is a dangerous phenomenon that people don't realize it and we don't even detect it until you know it doesn't hurt us right until it's at a certain level and it destroys delicate electronics well before that yes absolutely and so we have all sorts of techniques by which we uh, deal with that and it gets worse if they go outside the spacecraft because uh, uh, the things we do to get rid of that sort of depend on there being air Right. Hmm. Yep. So uh, there are all sorts of... Uh, Just even in, in general on the Earth, you know, the drier it is, the easier it is for you to to have that electric, electrostatic discharges. Right, exactly. So, uh, and of course, you don't want it to have too much water because water causes corrosion of all sorts of components, especially electronic ones. And yep. No, there are all sorts of uh, complicated things to account for and of course astronauts need to work out otherwise their bone density goes down yep. and, and so you need to have exercise equipment for them that also works and doesn't break other things like when i was working on the space station there was this uh before we got treadmill two <laughs> treadmill two is named after stephen colbert so um, nice <laughs> uh, he, something else was supposed to be named after him but that's right. decided that 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 was too big a thing yeah, he, it's because he there was a contest to name it on the internet, and Stephen Colbert just pulled his audience to vote for him. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so then anyway, treadmill two uh, was isolated, and what that means is uh, they sort of loosely attached it to the rest of the space station. Mm -hmm. But before that, they had this treadmill that the astronauts would run on. They kind of get bungee corded to it, so they get the impact of their their feet hitting right. the ground to keep the bone density up. Mm -hmm. Well, that whole process shook everything oh yeah i can imagine 
And when you shake it, then you can move it back and forth. And like the uh, uh, like cracks g- growing across your windshield, you know, from every mm-hmm. little thing you do, those things exist in metal objects and will break them eventually if you're not, not careful. Yep. So there are all sorts of crazy things that you have to account <laughs> for. And, and then space, uh, especially near the Earth, is, is kind of complicated where, you know, uh, you, go around, you zip around the Earth every 90 minutes or so, you know, some of that time you're in the shadow, and the shadow's really cold. Yeah. And the, and the sun is really hot, but it's cold on the other side of you. So it's like, so all sorts of uh, complicated things happen to whatever you make your spacecraft out of. And there's a lot of debris as well at this point. That is true. Um, uh, and there are people that are working on that problem um at my own alma mater there's a, a professor that's doing lots of research on that i think it involves uh, using a laser from the ground to uh, slow down space junk because if you slow it down it comes into the yeah. atmosphere and burns up or mostly hits water or whatever um, and honestly i gotta think that someone proposing i'm gonna shoot a laser into space they're probably gonna get some good backers <laughs> Because that's one of the human things, too, is that we, we like things like that. <laughs> uh, think about shooting lasers towards the sky. Uh, that actually happens at your average telescope, too, because mm-hmm. uh, to make the image clearer, uh, what we'll do is we'll use a laser to make an artificial star on the, on the sky, and the uh, aberrations that are created by the disturbance of the atmosphere at the top layers of the planet, uh, outer layers of the planet, if you will, Top makes it sound flat. Um, <laughs> the outer layers uh, would be modeled in that dot, uh, that uh, the artificial star. That's really cool. And so, by knowing how to take out the that make that dot back into a dot uh, on your image is fixes the rest of the image. Ah, yes. The so, so observatories regularly shoot lasers into the sky, but not the kind of lasers that uh, it's the same kind of lasers you point at it. You know. In, 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 a, in a giant classroom or right. planetarium or something like that. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, uh, yeah, no, yeah, shooting lasers in the sky sounds awesome, actually. <laughs> Do not underestimate <laughs> the power of, oh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> it, it, it is an important feature. Like, uh, um, I've had to explain that one of the crates. To, to people before that one of the criteria in a job search in, uh, in, in, in my field now involves, does that sound like interesting work? Like, not only does it have to pay enough, but am I going to be interested in that? Right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, no, the debris out there is very dangerous because uh, if you're, it's mostly, the good news is most of it's all going in the same direction. Um, the bad news is that the, the ones that are going the other way are going really fast. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, if you think about, if you, if, you, if you try to use the car against a brick wall model, you double the speed so because the things are traveling in the opposite direction. Right. So, so the debris is very dangerous, and we have all sorts of people that work on that. Um uh, one of the guys I worked with when I was uh, working on the space station program was uh, they were doing um, what they call a micrometeor orbital debris. Mm. So the, the problem is that 
we have uh, mechanisms to track some of the junk. And the junk that we can track is all quite large. It's, uh, yeah, it's the size. It's three centimeters in diameter, roughly. Mm-hmm. And uh, if it's bigger than that, we can track it and avoid it for the most part. If it's smaller than that, we can't track it, which means you can't avoid it. And there are lots of very dangerous things traveling very fast, and they'll put little holes. That is pro- so there's been a leak on the space station? Yep. That is probably what happened. Some piece of debris passed through the space station and made a hole. Right. Probably two holes. Um, but uh, because and they're small, so the leak is slow. Right. It's disconcerting to think, oh, my air is going out of that spot over there. That <laughs> um, We don't like making astronauts nervous. Uh, nor, nor would we want to because eventually all humans will, will do this and you don't want to make it most people nervous. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, no, so uh, the debris that we have up there is is an important factor. As a matter of fact, that's why we stopped when we had the shuttle program. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to paint the main tank white. Right. And we stopped doing that because of the debris that paint created. Oh, wow. Um, and we discovered it because a piece almost went through a window. Yeah. So uh, we stopped painting it because it was just cosmetic and it cost a lot of money anyway. Right. To, to paint it from the orange that the foam was right. to, to white. So. Uh, yeah, I think I always think of um, when I think of the debris, I think of all those sort of gotcha videos of things that aren't you see floating outside of the windows from the space shuttle and people say, oh, that's, you know, some sort of alien craft. And I'm like, no, that's some sort of space junk. It's often water, actually. And uh, water, yeah. Uh, because uh, uh, a lot of our spacecraft uh, um, dump, while well, well, one, human wastewater. Two, uh, a lot of the uh, ways we generate electricity out in space involve combining uh, hydrogen and oxygen Mm-hmm. Uh, to generate electricity, and that leaves water behind, and the people don't need to drink that much water. Uh, so a lot of water just gets dumped overboard. Uh, also because eventually it'll fall to the earth and rejoin our water supply. Um, so a lot of the times it's just, you know, snowflakes out right. in space. That, and, and water has a, what's known as a high albedo, which means it's really shiny and reflective. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we, of course, see it as very bright lights in the sunlight. So... Yep. That's where a lot of um, uh, weird things in the sky is. Mm-hmm. There are people who aren't... It's interesting that a lot of UFO sightings come from people who aren't used to looking at the sky. Yes. Uh, so uh, I remember reading about this instance in... Um, shoot. Um, I can't remember who wrote the book. Anyway... This, this, these people called in a UFO sighting, and, a, and it was flying all over the place. And they were, they saw it when they were driving down this road. As it turns out, it was Venus. <laughs> okay, what they saw was a planet out in the sky, but because they were driving in a weird way, it was zipping around. Oh, of the course, sky. yeah, that makes total sense. <laughs> But but they didn't think oh we're in a moving car traveling down the road so of course right. this thing and this dot in the distant sky that which is actually stationary nearly, for the most part nearly so <laughs> uh, so of course they 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 saw this weird thing happening of course they, and they didn't know that 
something that bright would be a, a well, it's not a star, but it, you know. It's, right. Yeah, and, you know, Venus and Mars can be quite bright in the sky. Yeah. Um, you know, recently, I think it was, you could see Mars, and it was very uh, bright. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, uh, well, they're quite nearby. Right, as a result, absolutely. As a result, that, uh, there, there's plenty of Mars shine, if you will. <laughs> so, yeah, um but it is funny. I, I have to say that one of my things uh, is these sort of aliens people. I, I love all of that kind of stuff. And I love just being like, I love listening to it and thinking about the like six different things that it could have been that are completely natural. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Like uh, I really enjoy a lot of those uh, people too. Like there's that guy on the Discovery Channel with his hair just kind of sticking ah. up Einstein like. Yes, that that I, is that is. Memed with uh, aliens. <laughs> I, I can tell you who that is. Uh, that is Giorgio Sukalos, and he is the uh, ancient aliens uh, guru. Uh, unfortunately, um, yes, he is. He is very much the. I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens. <laughs> uh, uh, man, you know what would be great is it, uh, and I bet this exists somewhere, uh, mm -hmm. a picture of him with David Duchovny dressed up as Mulder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I think Absolutely. That would be hilarious. Anyway, um, yeah, no, the people have uh, all sorts of crazy things they believe because there's so many ways for us to be. Um, mistaken about right. what we see and what we encounter, and uh, uh, we're prone to put agency on things. Like uh, you know, even even myself, I I sometimes talk to my car. Yeah. Like, like we can make it to the gas station. It's okay. There's no point in talking to my car, but I do <laughs> it. Like <laughs> absolutely. And I'm kind of a, a, a classically hyper rational sort of person. It's weird. Like, right. yeah. And pareidolia is such a strong phenomenon in humans. And, like, you know, there's a strong evolutionary reason for that. And, um, but, you know, we're not looking for tigers in the bushes anymore, but we still see them. And well, I, I thought a lot of pareidolia was uh, from uh, infancy when our eyes aren't very good, but we still need to recognize faces. Like, there's uh, also that as well. Yeah. But the idea is, uh, there's also some ideas about how. It's better to see things that are not there gotcha. than to not see things that are there. <laughs> right, the, the category one error versus category two. Error. Exactly. False, false, <laughs> false positives versus false negatives. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no. Uh, uh, and these will unfortunately plague human minds for a long time to come. Uh, it's all about trying, trying to not fall for them, I guess. And I think that's an important part of science is the idea that humans are fooled by, by a myriad of things. Uh, oh, so many brain processes. I mean, I could tell you, I could spend an hour telling you about processes in the brain that just are, you, you never feel bet, feel good about your brain ever again. Oh <laughs> yeah. Well, these heuristics are meant to, uh, uh, meant to make it possible to do things. Like if you were to, um, Learn, learn to drive a car, right? The, the the process to make driving a car a doable action is sort of divorced from the theoretical physics underpinnings of what's happening. Oh, absolutely. And uh, 
And you would never bother to go through all that math with someone who's 16 trying to learn to drive a car. <laughs> it's just not worth it. There are all these other heuristics we can go through about, you know, knowing that cars are heading towards you and all that other thing. So, yeah, no, these 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 uh, shortcuts that our brains take, this sort of uh, analog approach. Actually, I was, uh, I, a couple of years ago, I read this book by Steven Pinker, How the Mind Works. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had this great, I think it was in the introduction, he was talking about uh, people who build robots aren't fascinated by uh, the human mind's ability to play chess. Mm-hmm. They're fascinated by the human mind's ability to have a child pick up their toys and put them away. That is a way more complicated process Absolutely. than playing uh, uh, some sort of number game like Sudoku or whatever. All that is relatively easy, even though brilliant people get devoted to doing these more esoteric maths. Um, but the, fundamentally, they're not as complicated a, a, a task as um, relatively normal reaching, grabbing, pulling, putting things into their appropriate place. And uh, that is so true. Like, uh, um, um, uh, when I was in, when I was, okay, so amongst the rocket science that we do, oh, okay, there there are some specializations. Uh, One of them is uh, control theory, making the rockets go where you want them to go. Right. And uh, I worked on that a lot when I was in school. As it turns out, there's not a lot of jobs calculating ways to Mars. (laughs) At any rate, that control law is really complicated, and that analog approach that humans have, that all animals have, like sharks and bears and all that stuff, is way more complicated to think, and that's why robots are so hard to make. Right. So it's a, um, it's, it's everything is super interesting. Well, and just also just the whole idea of programming, like even in my work, you know. Students will say, well, why can't we just, why doesn't the computer know that this is this? And it's like, because the computer doesn't have the ability to make that leap of logic. It can only see that A equals A. It can't see that A could also equal B unless we specifically tell it to see that to, A could also be B. To, to look at all those other options and to, to systematically approach all these different uh, possibilities and and plan and compare to past experiences and all sorts of things that the human mind does that is totally different. Yeah. Well, this has been an amazing and fascinating time, and I hope you'll come back at some other point sure and uh, do this again. But uh, that is all the time we have for uh, Evidence-Based Radio tonight. Uh, do stay tuned. Civil Politics will be coming up next. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.